In the end, the atheist must hold that our thinking, our reasoning, our reading reduces to what John Polkinghorn referred to as the absurd chatter of firing synapses in this pile of meat sitting behind these eyes. Which is somewhere. funny because even okay. absurd is a, something of, of a value judgment in a valueless, <laughs> you know. Yeah, it, it's, it's a, yeah, it, it's a, right. Well, hello, and welcome to a very special episode of On the Journey with mm. Matt and Ken. I'm Matt Swaim, along with my colleague Ken Hensley. He was a former Baptist pastor. I uh, was a Wesleyan Arminian who played in bands and worked in Christian bookstores. And we, through various different twists and turns, both ended up in the Catholic Church. Uh, we've been trying to talk about that a little bit through the course of this series. We've been focusing quite a bit on atheism uh, of late and scientific Recently. materialism, yeah. and uh, we'll see. Uh, we'll see what we get into today. Uh, the conversation keeps on getting more and more complex. Uh, so, uh, hang with yes. us if you can. Check us out at Coming Home Network's uh, website, which is chnetwork.org. Especially if you want to join the conversation with us, uh, go to community.chnetwork.org as well. Ken, you ready to go and do some really like complicated thought this week? <laughs> I think so. Not sure. Um, did you mention we're taking a couple weeks off? Yeah, we will be taking a little time off for the Christmas holiday. I hope that our viewers and listeners will be taking some time not off. Starting, not starting so. right this second, but after this. Yeah, as soon as I click uh, pause on my recording. That's I'm why I take that's a why I put on a nice nap. dress shirt today. I put on a nice dress shirt because I thought I want to make a good impression in the event that I don't make it through the Christmas season and this is our last episode, something like that. Well, in the words of Merle Haggard, who was uh, my vinyl last week. If we make it through December, what? Ken, everything's going to be all right, I know. Okay. So um, this is a very special episode, as you said, and that's because you and I are a very special breed. And that's what we're going to get into today. In fact, that's the title of this episode, A Very Special Breed. And let me begin with a very intensely profound poem. <laughs> you are a human animal. <laughs> you are a human animal. You are a very special breed. For you are the only animal who can think, who can reason, who can read. All right. And note that that is not a bit of a poem written by Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens or anything like that. Um, this is actually from a Disney sing-along tape that my kids used to listen to when they were little, Matt. And for some reason, it just drove me crazy. And I, I think it drove me crazy because I kind of understood what was being implied philosophically in the background or what kind of worldview was being was being set forward. You are a human animal. You are a very special breed because you are the only animal who can think, who can reason, who can read. This is where we begin today. And of course, it's true in part. I mean, you and I are a very special breed. Um, after all, we do possess the astonishing ability, when you think of it, to think <laughs> An astonishing ability when you think of it to think, okay? The astonishing ability to think, to reason, and to read unlike any other creature on earth. And this is true whether we believe in God 
whether we believe in our special creation in the image and likeness of God, and that our thinking ability is an ability that we have because we are the image of God, or whether we believe that we are nothing more than what my teacher used to say, the forward edge of the sludge of evolution, mere accidental products of an entirely accidental, non-personal material universe. Okay, both of us, whether we are theists, whether we are atheists, we think, we reason, and we read. Both of us want to be rational. Atheists want to be rational. Theists want to be rational in our thinking about the world in which we find ourselves. Both of us, in fact, you talked about this last week, both of us assume the essential re reliability of our ability to think and to reason and to read and to come to true knowledge. Or at least we, we do as of that. this part in the episode, at least we both think that, right? <laughs> Later in the episode, well, we'll figure uh, out whether or not we both think that. Yeah, yeah, and I'm saying that in general life, though, we all assume that. We have to assume the essential reliability or we would just stop doing it. Stop thinking, stop reading, stop speaking, stop arguing, stop uh, everything, okay? Okay, the difference between us, that is the theist and the atheist, this is what we've been arguing and asserting. And I encourage anyone watching this or listening, you've got to go back and watch last week's episode that was titled, what was it titled, Matt? Was that the, uh, is, the one on knowledge? Is mind, is mind... Is mind merely matter? Okay, yeah. Or is last it a week's episode is <laughs> Last week's episode, is mind merely matter? You really need to go back and watch that, listen to it, because it provides a lot of background for what we're building on today, okay? So the difference between us, okay, I'm saying we both want to be rational, and we both assume the, uh, the reliability of our thinking to come to truth and all that. The difference between us is this. While those who believe in God hold to a worldview that can account for and that can make sense of our ability to seek and find truth through the use of reason, our argument has been that the atheist, the materialist, does not. As much as the atheist desires to be rational, he holds a view of the world that provides no foundation for rationality. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm simply stating it here, and I'm going to state this in several different, different ways, Matt, as an introduction. But again, got to go back to last week's to really see the groundwork that put that into place, okay? I'm saying that as much as the materialist, someone who holds to a materialist worldview, wants to be rational... He holds to a view of the universe that provides no foundation for rationality. And, I, uh, and just to and be I'll clear here, uh, sure. we're not saying that people who are atheists uh, or scientific materialists are unreasonable people, nor that they are no. irrational, people, irrational people. What we're saying is that if the conclusions of that worldview are true, there's no, there's no basis for arguing that there's any kind of foundation for rational yeah. thought. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, that was very good. That's well, the best the I could thing we squeak face. out trying to explain it. Truly, you have a dizzying intellect, okay. Ken. It, well, it's the same thing that we, same kind of thing that we said when we were talking about morality or talking about freedom, that we were not saying that, that, that materialists are necessarily immoral. We we're saying that their worldview can't account for right and wrong, for morality, for objective morality. Um, same thing when we talked about the value of human beings or unalienable human rights. We're not saying that atheists don't believe in these things. We're saying they have no foundation for them in their worldview, okay? And that's what I'm saying here, all right? Um, the atheist seeks knowledge. Um, uh, let me illustrate this in a couple ways. The materialist seeks knowledge through a process of reasoning 
And that process of reasoning is governed entirely by abstract, universal, unchanging laws of thought, while holding to a worldview in which there, there's no foundation for even believing in the existence of abstract, universal, unchanging laws of thought, in, in which the atheist will say nothing exists but physical particles interacting according to physical laws. So you're seeking knowledge through a process of reasoning, and then you try and say, but then again, nothing exists but particles interacting, not by laws of reason, but interacting according to physical laws. Or to say it another way, the materialist wants to take his thoughts, his ideas, his reasoning seriously, as though these might lead him to truth, while he holds to a worldview that reduces his thoughts, his ideas, even the process of reasoning, to electrochemical events occurring in a brain and determined, again, not by laws of thought, but, by, but determined by physical laws. You see the kind of pattern that's being set up here? Okay, I'll say it another way. The materialist, this is a good way of saying it, the materialist wants to imagine that his thinking, his ideas, his use of reason, somehow rise above the closed system of physical causes and effects, you know, like a rocket ship escaping from, you know, Earth's gravity or something like that. He wants to imagine, he has to imagine that his thinking somehow rises above the closed system of material causes and effects while he turns around and says that the, uh, according to his worldview, nothing escapes the closed system of physical causes and effects. Again, nothing exists even but particles and their relations, and everything can be explained in terms of those particles, as John Searle said to us. There's sort of an analogy in this uh, with some people who uh, take a purely, um, I guess you could say, individualist sola scriptura view of the scriptures, um, in a mm -hmm. sense that they look around and they see, uh, that they say that everyone is subject to the law of the scriptures, but then they look around and see that nobody that they know seems to be uh, interpreting the scriptures the way that they think that the scriptures ought to be interpreted. So they, outside of this closed system of sola scriptura, stand above sola scriptura to tell everybody what sola scriptura means, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, I, you know, and, and it's a, I mean, when you're in it, when you're in any kind of worldview, it's hard to see how there could be any other kind mm -hmm. of worldview except for the one that you're in. But if you step outside and start looking at it the way we're looking at this, the way that we looked at Sola Scripture before and the way yeah, that we're looking yeah. at this kind of yeah. pure scientific materialist approach to the universe, you know, you got to take some internal critiques. You got to be able to to take your worldview has to be able to take a licking and keep on ticking if it's going to be a valid worldview. Yeah. And yeah. And we're going to see that quite a licking is taken. <laughs> even though we do keep on ticking in the sense that we keep on thinking, reading, and uh, reasoning, you know, as, as the as the little Disney ditty said. Okay, so say I'll say it one more way. The materialist must think of his mind as being somehow more than matter, as somehow escaping the closed system of physical cause and effects. It has to be something more than material, while he holds to a worldview in which he says nothing exists but material. And therefore, where his thoughts, his ideas, even the process of reasoning that is going on inside his mind are excretions of brain, to use Darwin's <laughs> lovely phrase, okay? They're physically produced, okay? And so I summarize it like this. In the end, the atheist must hold 
that our thinking, our reasoning, our reading reduces to what John Polkinghorne referred to as the absurd chatter of firing synapses in this pile of meat sitting behind these eyes. Which is funny because even absurd is something of a value judgment in a valueless, (laughs) you know. Yeah, it's it's a, right. Okay, and so let me quote Polkinghorne here. This is what he said. Um, This is what this mathematical physicist said about that. He says, materialism destroys rationality. And here's why. Thought is replaced by electrochemical neural events, events in the brain. And then he says, two such events in the brain physical events, neural electrochemical events, two such events cannot confront each other in rational discourse. They are neither right nor wrong. They simply happen. The very assertions of the reductionist, that is someone who reduces everything to material, the materialist, the very assertions of the reductionist himself are nothing but blips in the neural network of his brain. The world of rational discourse dissolves into the absurd chatter of firing synapses. Quite frankly, that cannot be right, and none of us believes it to be so. This is essentially where we came last week, and again, I can only encourage people to go back and watch last week's episode as a prelude to this week's. But this is what we came to last week, the conclusion that materialism eliminates the possibility of knowledge, such that if if materialism were true, we could know nothing at all, including the fact that materialism was true. Okay, what we're going to jump into today is how do materialists deal with this problem then of mind and matter or mind being reduced to matter and therefore everything we think being physically, causally produced rather than produced by the laws of reason, by the laws of thought? How do they deal with the implications of the materialist worldview for knowledge? That's what we're asking. And let me begin by saying this, Matt. Most of those who would say that they don't believe in God, most people in the don't deal with the problem at all. Okay, Most... I, many, most, have never even thought of it, never even thought of it. And the reason that they haven't thought of it, which I'm, I'm very sympathetic to, the reason is to think, to reason, and to read, to reason through issues, to draw logical inferences and conclusions, to debate, to argue, to make points. I mean, these are activities that are so natural to us as human beings, created in the image and likeness of a personal thinking God. I mean, these are activities that are so natural to us that it just doesn't cross our minds to imagine that we need to somehow account for our ability to do them in terms of the worldview that we hold, you know? It's just, we just do them. It's, it's as natural as anything. And so most materialists, most atheists, just live their lives thinking, reasoning, reading, without ever stopping and asking the question, how would any of this be possible in a universe in which everything, and I mean everything, is determined by material forces, in which even my thoughts turn out to be excretions of brain? Most don't think of it. And most I can understand why. Why, why would you think of it? it? It's like I'm walking down the street and someone says, hey, hold on, you can't take another step until you can justify your ability to walk or something like that, you know? It yeah, just sounds it's, like uh, It is an interesting thing. But, but again, um, you have... 5,000 grandchildren, Ken, so your grandchildren think like this, you know, your grandchildren are like miniature versions of the Backstreet Boys, you know, they look at a tree, 
They look at a leaf. They look at a bug. They look at the sky. They look at the stars. And just like the Backstreet Boys, they just, it's always a constant stream of tell me why, you know, like everything (laughs) you have to explain everything nonstop when you're with a little kid, because a kid just wants to know, why do we breathe? Uh, why is water wet? I thought that was sync. That that was the Backstreet Boys. No, that's definitely the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, that was the Backstreet Boys. Yeah, why is water wet? Why do why do we yeah, they're asking all these questions. Yeah, like the, this morning my 5-year-old in kindergarten, well he didn't ask a question, but he was he was gazing out the window as we were driving past 10,000 homes and he said, "Grandpa, he said, "Do you know that there there are 280 people in the world at least?" <laughs> so, at least. Okay, well he's drawing some conclusions. Anyway, I said, "Come on, man, this is like synapses firing. You're not making any sense." Okay. So, most uh, most people who would say that they don't believe in God, you know, they read a Dawkins book or whatever, they've thought about it. It's never crossed their minds that they would need to justify, in terms of their worldview, their ability to think, to reason, and to read. Okay, it just doesn't cross the mind. But what about those who have thought about it? That's what I want to focus on here for a little bit. What about those who have thought about the problem of how to make sense of knowledge in a materialist universe? How do they deal with it? Okay, and the first, the first response is what I call the practical response, the pragmatic response, which amounts to, come on, however it happened, our minds seem to work just fine, <laughs> okay? You know, I have no idea, but however it happened, here we are talking. Here I am thinking, reading, you know, reasoning, and our minds seem to work just fine. Okay, I want to talk for a moment about our friend, atheist philosopher of mind, John Searle, because he, he has thought about this a lot. And frankly, John Searle, philosophy, uh, philosopher of mind, he literally throws up his hands when it comes to the amazing things that our minds can do. I mean, he, he's just dumbfounded by it. And this is why. He understands that random mutation and natural selection, which are really at the heart, the essence of the theory of evolution, he understands that random mutation and natural selection don't care about truth. They don't give a hoot about truth. All they care about is survival and reproduction, right? Random genetic mutations sorted out by natural selection. All of it is about survival and reproduction, not about truth. I mean, you know, cockroaches and rats survive, they reproduce, and they don't know a damn thing. I mean, they don't watch on the journey with Matt and Ken. They don't even know when the episodes are released each week. They just know, they know nothing. They don't they're even really know that hard they're to kill eight, too. Eight. They're really hard to kill, and this is a product of their <laughs> yeah. uh, evolutionary they do well. adaptation. They do well. Right? They do extremely well. They do well. well, and and they don't even know that there are 280 people in the world. Okay, they know nothing. Okay, now Searle understands this. He's an atheist. He you know he believes you know totally in, in a biological Darwinian kind of view of the universe, an atheistic Darwinian view. Well, Searle understands that evolution is about survival and reproduction and nothing else. And because of that, he wonders, like I said, he throws up his hands. He's amazed at how we human beings came to possess mental capabilities that so obviously go unbelievably far beyond what is needed for survival and reproduction. Let me, let me put it like this. And, you know, he can imagine how we might evolve some very basic abilities related to reproduction and survival. You know, I, I need a nest. You know, here comes a tiger, I need to run. But he cannot imagine, and again, as a Darwinian, he cannot imagine how and why 
we would ever have evolved the ability to, to compose violin concertos or, you know, even worse, how did we evolve the ability to develop unbelievably complex mathematical theories dealing with the curvature of time and space? You know, just, just things that go way beyond. I mean, I, I, I'm just loosely coming up with analogies here, but, but I mean, an apple just comes off a tree, you know, so how and why would an apple ever evolve, you know, a pair of sunglasses or something? It is just formed yeah, on yeah. a tree well, like sunglasses. Yeah, like a cockroach could evolve uh, an immune system, um, you know, quality that would allow it to fight COVID and AIDS, right? Um, but a cockroach is never going to evolve the brain capacity to develop Bluetooth technology such as you and I use when we are listening to our earbuds recording episodes, right? Yeah. I mean, this, or, or, this or, is, or, those or, are of a, of a degree so far beyond any other species on the planet. It's impossible to even like calculate or, the chasm between yeah, us what and is a cockroach needed? and that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So he said, so John Searle is sitting there thinking, why do we have the ability to compose episodes of Gilligan's Island. I mean, why? Where does that come from? That's what he's asking. Okay, and here's his conclusion. He says, we are baboons with a surplus of neurons. Okay, for some unknown reason, for some reason that doesn't make any sense within an evolutionary framework, he says, we're baboons that for some reason are just loaded down with uh, with neurons, with with mental capabilities that 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 have no particular survival value that just go way beyond what is needed and yet again random mutations occur natural selection it, it's all about sorting out and retaining the mutations that help with survival and re, re, reproduction and so he just says i have no idea we're baboons with a surplus of neurons it doesn't make any sense and when it comes to the reliability of our thinking to arrive at truth you know, given that evolution doesn't care about truth, um, he just takes the pragmatic route. He just says, all we can do is, is, you know, it seems to work. And all we can do is trust our minds, at least provisionally, to, so we can go on doing science, we can go on thinking, reading, reasoning, and we can test the limits of our mental abilities by the results we get. You know, which is another way of saying, well, however it happened, our minds seem to work just fine. Let's just go on using them and who knows. Well, and okay. there's also kind of like this sense um, in these kind of conversations, and I know that C.S. Lewis is going to come up a few times in the course of this conversation, uh, that this unguided deterministic process will produce um, better and better humans and better and better adaptations of the human mind and body and, yeah. and so on and so forth. And, and this goes back to a little bit of, uh, you know, Darwin's like sort of bewilderment that why are we... Uh, the smartest species on earth prote protecting our weakest. <laughs> We're the only species that does that. Um, but there's this passage in Lewis's God on the Dock uh, that talks about, you know, we're going better, we're getting better, mm -hmm. we're continuing to improve as a race, continuing to evolve, progress, and all this. But um, there's no nothing in any of this that allows us to say, well, this is better than that. We can't make a value judgment about this. We can say that this is or not right, right. an aid to reproduction, um, an aid to survival, but is it better? I mean, that's hard to say. Uh, as a matter of fact, he says here, um, there's no sense in talking of becoming better if better means simply what we are becoming. <laughs> um, it's like congratulating yourself on reaching your destination and defining destination as the place you have reached. 
Um, and then when yeah. you when you read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, this is uh, you know kind of the thinking that comes out in the villain that you know hitchhikes to or the well that makes his way to um to to Mars and and the conversations that are going on in all this. Uh, you know what is it that we're really trying to preserve and move ahead with the species if we can't really even say if something is better or worse if all that really matters is reproduction and survival. I mean, these are hard things to yeah. try and assign value to. Well, that's where value disappears. You know, that's what we've talked about. That's where right and wrong disappear. That's where value disappears. You know, uh, you know I mean, if, 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 if the only law operating really is the survival of the fittest and reproduction and survival is what it's all about. Yeah. And, and so what's being brought out here is, and, and what, what, what John Searle is kind of flipping out about is why did this apple on this tree? I mean, it's doing its job. It's hanging there. It's brightly colored and people are eating it. Why did it evolve a pair of sunglasses? And then, then why is it, why is it wearing Ray-Bans now? I mean, what's the deal? Why are, why have we developed all of these things that go so far beyond? So obviously far beyond what, what is needed because you would think the only thing that would evolve and the, the only thing that would remain would be what, what improves survival and improves reproduction. And again, we, we've talked about cockroaches and rats. You know, they don't know any of this stuff, and yet they reproduce just fine. They survive just fine. Oh, okay, and so he ends up just saying, look, we're, we're baboons with a, with a surplus of neurons. However it happened, I don't know how it happened, but the bottom line is our minds seem to work, so let's just take a practical approach. Well, you and I commented on this last week, and we pointed out that this is not an answer to the problem. This is simply not an answer to the problem of knowledge in a materialist universe because the fact that our reasoning processes seem to work, the fact that our minds seem to work just fine and we're able to come to truth, this is not an argument in favor of materialism because maybe the reason we can think and reason and read and come to truth, maybe it's because materialism isn't true. Maybe that's why. I mean, maybe it's because our minds are more than matter Maybe it's because maybe the materialist ability to think and reason and read is and come to knowledge. Maybe it all works because the materialist is made in the image and likeness of God and his thinking reflects the thinking of the personal creator who made him. Okay, so it's not an argument, you know. So what I would say is rather than assuming the truth of materialism and then saying, well, somehow it works, okay, rather than assuming, well, materialism's true, and yet here we can think and reason and read, and so somehow it must work. What the materialist needs to do is explain how it could possibly work, given his view of things. Which is only and, fair uh, because a materialist points to religious uh, belief systems and say, well, explain to me how that works. And yeah, it's we, only fair. We have to, we ha that's a fair question, right? We, if we're going to uh, hold to a theistic worldview specifically a Christian worldview, specifically a Catholic mm -hmm. worldview in the case of you and myself, uh, we do have to give an account of why we think that works. Uh, we have to analyze the system. Does it work with the system? Um, but then when the materialist yeah, tries to do it, uh, here's I guess this is where we're going with that. What happens if they have to do that from a materialist perspective? Yeah, yeah. The materialist cannot simply say, well, materialism's true, and it, and it works somehow it works you, you need to explain how it could possibly work given your view 
that everything in the universe is a cause and effect material sort of thing, and yet mind, reasoning, thoughts, ideas do not, do, do not appear to be material. Okay, and the other things we've mentioned. Okay, and this is not simply something, again, it's always good to quote an atheist at a certain point, because this is not something I'm saying. Atheists need, uh, pose the same problem. The materialist needs to answer the problem, for instance, posed by British evolutionary biologist J.B.S. Haldane when he put it like this. If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, that's his way of saying electrochemical processes. If my mental processes are determined wholly by the motions of atoms in my brain, I have no reason to suppose that my beliefs are true. And hence, I have no reason for supposing my brain to be composed of atoms. That's the circularity of the whole thing. He's basically just saying, hey, look, you guys, if everything I'm thinking is being physically caused within my mind, then I have no reason on that basis for thinking any of it is true, including the idea that my brain is made of atoms. That's what the, the materialist needs to answer that question that John Polkinghorne Horn, uh, put out. And even though I read it a few minutes ago, I want to quickly read it again because it's so powerful. He says, materialism destroys rationality because thought is replaced by electrochemical neural events, physical events. And he says, two such events cannot confront each other in rational discourse. I mean, they're, they're two physical events. They're neither right nor wrong. They simply happen. One physical event, one another physical event. The very assertions of the reductionist materialist himself are nothing more than blips in the neural network of his brain. The world of rational discourse on a basis of materialism, he says, dissolves into the absurd chatter of firing synapses. Quite frankly, that cannot be right. And none of us believes it to be so. And so Polkinghorne this is the challenge. Is the, uh, Polkinghorne's the, uh, is he the Anglican? Is that right? No. He's the one who was the, he was professor of mathematical uh, physics at Oxford, and he retired from there to go to seminary, and he became an Anglican priest, yeah. yeah maybe this is why. making sure that I don't get my theists and my atheists mixed up in the mix here, so. Yeah, maybe, maybe this is why, because he, he thought about J.B.S. Haldane's problem, you know, if everything I'm thinking is the result of atoms moving around in my brain, how can I trust? And, and maybe he thought through that, and he said, you know what, this can't be right. And therefore, the alternative must be true, and that is that we are not matter. We are not mere matter. We're more than matter. Maybe that's what happened. But anyway, this is the challenge that the materialist needs to deal with. And the fact that materialists do think, you mentioned this a little while ago, we're not saying that they don't think. The fact that materialists do think, they do reason, they do read, and they're, they're successful in coming to knowledge, simply saying, well, it works, is no answer to the challenge. In fact, it's evidence I would say that their mental processes are not determined by the motions of atoms in their brains. The fact that or it works. Or at least not all the way the fact, determined. They determine in some way, right, shape, or form, right. but that the motion of atoms is not, it can't give the full explanation of what's happening. Right, right. If anything, it's evidence that our ability to come to the truth is evidence that materialism isn't true, that it isn't the whole picture, that matter isn't the whole picture. Which just makes me think off the top of my head, I'm remembering this illustration that, uh, you know, this is an illustration of how committed a person can be to a worldview. I read where, I read in one of Richard Dawkins' books where he said, he is so committed to a materialist atheist worldview. He said, if I were to walk past a statue of the Virgin Mary and that statue, a stone statue, and it were to wave at me, <laughs> he said, I would rather believe 
that all of the atoms in the arm of that stone statue just happened to move in the same direction in, in concert, forward and then backward, forward and then backward, so that the statue actually waved. I would rather believe that than to believe that something else was happening, something beyond matter. That's well, what I see here, you know? So. Yeah, that's what I see here. We can think, we can reason, we can read, have no concept of how that would be possible in a materialist world, but it is, because materialism is true. Okay, let us step forward, though, because there, there's a second way in which some attempt to use the evolutionary concept to answer the problem that materialism poses for knowledge. Um, and the argument, putting it in its simplest way, is this. In the process of evolution, random genetic mutations brought about our ability to think, and then natural selection rewarded creatures that could think rationally. Okay, So random genetic mutations bring about the ability to think. Natural selection rewards those creatures that thought rationally. You know, like cockroaches, <laughs> like, like rats. Okay, in other words, our brains evolve the ability to reason to correct conclusions through trial and error. You know, because natural selection rewarded us when we got our calculations right and the, and the spaceship actually went to the moon. And natural selection punished us when we got our calculations wrong. You're making natural selection sound really personified in this particular scenario. <laughs> Thank That's you, the way people selection. talk about it, although, although I'm glad that you are pointing out that it's not personified, you know. But the idea is that it, natural selection rewarded in the sense that if you got your calculations right and you made it to the moon, then that was... Natural uh, selection made a value that. judgment, right? Yeah. No, yeah, preserve. No, it's just a matter of survival again, okay? Anyway, this is the path that Stephen Hawking took, and here's his little statement on this. He said, provided the universe has evolved in a regular way, we might expect that the reasoning abilities that natural selection has given us would be valid and so would not lead us in the wrong directions. Okay, so he, he's just thinking evolution, things evolve in a regular kind of way and natural selection would preserve, that's another way of saying it, would reward those who, whose conclusions were rational you know, like, for instance, it would reward me if I don't step off the top of the Empire State Building and the guy next to me that just steps off uh, and falls, you know, uh, ran, natural selection doesn't reward him. It's the concept behind the so, Darwin Awards, right? If you ever read the Darwin Awards about people who yeah, manage yeah. to uh, end their lives accidentally in really uh, boneheaded ways, right? The natural selection is uh, punishing them and has decided they no longer belong in the gene pool. Um, yeah, I yeah. mean, natural selection, again, you don't want to mm -hmm. personify this, but that's kind of how sometimes, as you say, people talk in regard to this process. Yeah, it's as though it's kind of natural often for them to speak as though natural selection has some plans, you know. Natural selection wants a good outcome and therefore has these plans when actually it's just a brute material kind of process of weeding out what doesn't work. Okay. But, but anyways, so this is the, the position that Stephen Hawking took or just the way he viewed it. And I, I want to point out the problem with this, this way of thinking. And th this is kind of, um, well, hard to get your mind around. But, but here's the problem still as a materialist. If thoughts, Matt, your thoughts right now, if the ideas that are in your mind right now, if, well, I, I know I'll go back to Darwin. 
if Darwin's thoughts, if the ideas that were in his mind, if even the process of reasoning in Darwin's mind are reducible to deterministic physical processes taking place in his brain, then the theory of evolution that was in his brain is also something reducible to deterministic physical processes taking place in Darwin's brain and then later on taking place in Hawking's brain. In other words, the theory of evolution is itself an excretion of brain physically produced. And if that's the case, then when Hawking appeals to the theory of evolution to explain our ability to think and reason and read, to draw accurate conclusions, he's appealing to a theory that is itself the result of deterministic physical processes. Okay? Again, he's appealing to the theory of evolution to explain our ability to think and reason and read and draw accurate conclusions in a materialist universe, and yet he's appealing to a theory that is itself materially produced, deterministically. You see what I'm saying? He's, he's arguing in a circle. It, it turns out to be a hall of mirrors. When, when I say everything in my mind is deterministically produced by physical causes, electrochemical processes, and the theory of evolution is one of those, and then I'm going to use the theory of evolution to explain how the things that are produced by my brain are true. It's circular. This is what I find in general, this discussion, which I know is pretty heady and, and out there. Okay, and it's this. Every, everyone wants to be rational. Get okay, to start there, simple. Everyone wants to believe that knowledge is possible. In fact, every one of us assumes that knowledge is possible. Okay, and so when confronted with the problem of knowledge in a materialist universe, what materialists wind up, this is what I'm saying I find in general, is they wind up either escaping into pragmatism, oh well, it works, or into irrationalism. Well, maybe I can't account for it, but who knows anyway, Life's uh, everything's mysterious. Or bouncing back and forth between the two, okay? And let me kind of fill out the illustration a little bit. A materialist, like a theist, like, like everyone, a materialist lives his life assuming that knowledge is possible. He can think, he can reason, he can read, he can come to truth, he can draw conclusions, he can live. Now, when challenged with the problem of how knowledge is possible, when thoughts and ideas turn out to be excretions of brain, physical things, and even the process of reasoning is to... Uh, is conceived then as a deterministic physical process, okay, when challenged with that, the materialist can always take the pragmatic route and just simply say, well, it seems to work, which, as we've seen, isn't an answer because maybe the reason it works is because materialism isn't true. Maybe it's because God did create you and mind is more than matter, okay? But then when pressed for an explanation of how it works, how it's possible that it could work in a materialist universe, he can escape into irrationalism and he can basically say, okay, so I cannot account for how matter becomes mind. <clears throat> it, it, it's sort of like the question of alchemy. How do you turn metal into gold? You know, he, he can end up saying, look, I can't account for how matter becomes mind and how matter becomes ideas and thoughts that, are, that lead to truth rather than simply leading to material survival. 
Um, so maybe it's true uh, that knowledge is impossible. Fine. Okay, C.S. Lewis, in his wonderful book, Miracles, he, he talks about this exact problem, the, this kind of bouncing back and forth between rationalism, the desire to be rational, and admitting that who can know? No one can really know. Um, this is what he said, and I want to read it because it's really good. He says, some naturalists, and that's the same thing as materialists and what he's saying here, some naturalists whom I have met attempt to escape by saying that there is no ground for believing our thoughts to be valid and that this doesn't worry them in the least. We find that they work, it is said, and we admit that we cannot argue from this that they give us a true account of any external reality, but we don't mind. We are not interested in truth. Our habits of thought seem to enable humanity to keep alive, and that is all we care about. But unless the naturalists put forward naturalism as a true theory, we have, of course, no dispute with them. You can argue with a man who says rice is unwholesome, but you neither can nor need argue with a man who says rice is unwholesome, but I'm not saying this is true. I feel also that the surrender of the claim to truth has all the air of an expedient adopted at the last moment. If the naturalists do not claim to know any truths, ought they not to have warned us rather earlier of this fact? For really, from the books they've written in which the behavior of the remotest nebula the shyest proton in the most prehistoric man are described, one would have got the idea that they were claim claiming to give a true account of real things. The fact surely is that they nearly always are claiming to do so. The claim is surrendered only when the question discussed in this chapter is pressed, and when the crisis is over, the claim is tacitly resumed. In other words, basically what he's saying is, look, atheists entered the discussion with Christianity as veritable champions of rationalism. You know, we must be rational. Matt, we can't be like you Christians believing in all this mythological garbage. We need to be rational. We must adhere to the facts, the rules of evidence, the laws of right thinking. We must be rational. This is why we can't accept all the superstitious stuff that you guys are talking about. But as soon as you show them that on the basis of their materialist worldview, they have no grounds for trusting the validity of their thoughts, and reasoning processes, then they switch from rationalism, this is what Lewis is saying, then they switch from rationalism to irrationalism, and they respond, oh, but of course, ultimately, there, there's a chance universe and no one can really know anything for sure. There's this bouncing back and forth between the need to be rational and giving in to the idea that we really can know nothing for sure. It's a chance universe. Yeah, it's, it is yeah, very it's, interesting dance uh, when it comes down to this kind of conversation because, it, you know, when I when I get into um, these sorts of debate, debates, we go round and round in circles and uh, the question of um, can every single thing in the universe be explained by physical and chemical processes and deterministic movements of molecules? And I say, well, what about this? Uh, how do you explain that this is just... Uh, the materialist movement of molecules and say, well, we can't explain it, but I am confident that one day we will be able to explain how this all works using uh, the yeah, language yeah. of chemicals and atoms and physics and, and all of that. And it always makes me want to say, what do you call that? What's the word for when you have a confidence uh, that you will one day know something fully but you don't know it now, and so you just 
attest to belief in it for the time being. What's the word for that? I feel like it starts with an F. Yeah. Might be uh, faith. 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 That's the word, <laughs> right? It faith requires is, an enormous amount of faith, yeah. right? It's the substance, faith is of, the things substance of things for. hoped for, right? The evidence the things, of things uh, unseen, is, as uh, as we hear in Hebrews eleven. Yeah, it, this this worldview requires, at least for the time being, quite a lot of faith. Um, and and here's another interesting thing about that. If you bring God into any discussion, then you're presenting a God of the gaps argument. Oh, you're just bringing in God to explain something that we don't understand yet. And yet, if the materialist brings in and says, well, we don't know, but someday we will know how random mutation and natural selection can answer this. It's an atheism of the gaps, right? (laughs) Yeah, they're not bringing in the uh, natural selection of the gaps. No, okay. I have faith what there will be a future two... scientist. It's a faith in the future scientist that will figure this out. That's uh, Lewis refers to yeah. that uh, in God in the Dock as melantolatry, uh, future worship, which is a fun word to say. Future worship. Melantolatry. All right, well, well listen, ultimately then, what, what we've been arguing these last two weeks is that consistently followed, materialism leads should lead to complete skepticism, such that if... If atheists were really consistent with what they say is true about the universe in which we live, the atheists would abandon reason altogether. I mean, after all, it's just the chattering of synapses. I mean, it's just the firing of neurons. If he were really consistent, he would just, the atheist would simply say, look, every thought occurring in my brain is an excretion of brain. It's a physical event. I can't know whether it's connected to truth at all, or it doesn't make sense that it would lead to truth. It's just a physical event, firing of neurons. But the thing is, a materialist can't abandon reason. And the reason he can't abandon reason is the same reason he can't abandon moral morality. I mean, he's made in the image and likeness of God, and there's nothing more natural to him than thinking, reasoning, <laughs> reading, um, thinking his way to truth. Um, these are just as natural to the materialist as right and wrong, as believing that right and wrong are real, or believing that human beings have value, or believing that he has free will, or believing that his sense of consciousness, that his sense of being someone, is not just an illusion being generated by, again, electrochemical processes in a brain. Um, it's completely natural to him, and so he continues to seek truth, the materialist, even though his worldview ultimately cannot provide a foundation for it. And I give like as my final illustration, and because it's kind of ironic, but to even attack God's existence, the atheist is forced in a way, I would argue, the atheist is forced to presuppose God's existence, to even attack God's existence. And what I mean by that is that if, if he wants to use the weapons of mind, ideas, reason, logic to attack the existence of God, that is to create an argument against the existence of God, he's going to first have to borrow these weapons, mind, reason, logic, processes of thought. He's going to have to borrow them from a worldview that can make sense of them as being something more than just deterministically cause and effect products of a material world. All the uh, language of science and the fields of chemistry and physics and all that genetics were developed by people who believed in a creative, yeah. infinite, personal thinking 
God who put this together in an order. So, I mean, that's the two, that's the toolbox that you're getting these tools out of if you want to assemble this argument. That's yeah, that's exactly right because those tools make sense within that worldview. I mean, mind makes sense within a theistic worldview because we see it as being more than matter. Reason, thoughts, the ability to reason, the process of reasoning, laws of reasoning, laws of logic. You know, within a Christian theistic worldview, we believe in the existence of what philosophers refer to as abstract entities or can refer to them as that. Um, the materialist believes only in material. And so I would say that reason and logic, these are not weapons, or these are weapons that cannot be forged in the factory of materialism. You cannot start with matter and you cannot tweak matter and tweak it enough that suddenly a thought springs up that is independent of matter <laughs> or a process of reasoning just springs up. We've used the analogies in the past of like steam coming off a pond or something like that. You can't just stir up the water enough, heat the water enough, you know, boil it, throw some chemicals in there. You can't tweak the water enough to where suddenly something springs out of the water that is not material that is non-material, that is non-water-based, you know, that, that is not. And the same thing with our brains. You can't tweak our brains enough that something pops up that isn't material and that isn't caused and brought about utterly by physical processes. And so you can't forge these weapons in the factory of materialism. So in a sense, I would argue you have to borrow the weapons of reason, rationality from a worldview that can make sense of them which is a theistic worldview, in order to turn around and use them to prove that theism isn't true. It's a... Uh, have yeah, I worn it, myself out enough? You, yes. I, I, I don't know. I have no idea. Uh, but I do want to say this, that um, if you are an atheist, or if you have friends who are atheists, and you think that we're being hard on atheists in this series, I hope that you understand that we're um, trying to dissect the worldview rather than point at people and say, well, you're not smart. Mm -hmm. um, as a matter of fact, I hope what you're coming away with from all this is that However special and interesting the atheist may think himself to be, we believe that they are infinitely more special and infinitely more loved by an infinite uh, God who loved and willed them into existence. So just to kind of put that out there at the end. Um, but yeah, there's a lot to yeah, still which makes discuss. Us, so. which, makes us, which makes us truly a very special breed. <laughs> Indeed. Back to the However special you think you are as a materialist, trust me, you are infinitely more special and loved than that. So, um, yeah, we have uh, we have more to discuss on this question. But in the meantime, probably better end it there because this is... This is a lot to take in. It's a yeah. lot to take in. Uh, but please do come visit us, chnetwork.org. Uh, Community.chnetwork.org is where you can find our online community, which is uh, a great place to ask questions, sound off, and, and have conversations. And then, of course, if you want to support our work, um, you can always go to chnetwork.org slash donate. I'm Matt Swaim. Uh, and thank you, Ken Hensley, again for another great week of conversation. Thank we'll you. talk to you soon. Okay, Matt. We'll see you next week. Not really, though. <laughs> we'll see you after... <laughs> Once the Christmas season is in its full flower. We'll see you then, Ken. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>